0: It's the holidays and everyone is out of the office, so we put together three interviews from our most popular episodes of 2019. We'll be back in 2020 with all new episodes, of course, since the music business never sleeps. Welcome to The Future of What? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we recap some of your favorite interviews of 2019. It's all coming up on The Future of What... Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange, which provides royalty solutions and advocacy to ensure all music creators are paid what they are owed. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Sherry Hu from our episode, 2019 Trends in Music. Sherry, welcome back to The Future of What.
1: Thank you. Glad to be back.
0: All right. So it's still early-ish 2019, so I wanted to hit you up about trends in the music business. I know that you have written a whole bunch about the various things that you're seeing going on in the business from a lot of perspectives. I read your tweet that's like 20 of your favorite trends that you already wrote about.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was from end of last year. Yeah, yeah
0: that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot going on. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of exciting thing right now is is there is really a lot going on.
1: For sure, yeah. And even... Thinking about things that I didn't really cover in that thread that have happened already in 2019. So, first of all, I, I think one of the articles I posted in that thread was about the intersection of music and gaming. And what's so fascinating to me is that you now have games like Fortnite holding virtual concerts, like Marshmallow, the EDM DJ, just performed a concert to like 10 million people virtually within Fortnite. And Fortnite has sort of lived a very long and and surprisingly sustainable life cycle within the music industry, starting from when Drake was on a stream with Ninja, who's a really popular Twitch streamer. And that was early last year. And now that sort of culminated in bringing artists into the game engine itself and putting on these, these virtual shows and virtual concerts, that phenomenon has been something that the music industry has been toying with for a really long time. And, I guess in its most basic form, it can be in the form of like a Coachella live stream, but even that is just a live stream of a real life experience that you're missing and that some people are there in person to experience and others are not. Whereas things like Fortnite, there's no distinction at all. And I think that's one overarching theme that touches upon a lot of trends we're seeing in music is we're now dealing with younger generations of music fans, entertainment fans that never really thought about a pre-digital and post-digital music consumption experience, or they don't really see digital being separate from real life and from real concrete, tangible experience. So I just found that really fascinating.
0: It is fascinating. I think what comes into my mind as I look at all of these trends that you're talking about is how are artists supposed to make money these days? Because I feel like all of the the sort of intersection of music and tech, it seems to keep happening in ways that make how artists can make money sort of slide farther and farther out of reach. I mean, that's at least my take on it.
1: Yeah. Part of it is these sources of income going out of reach because a lot of these newer income streams are not quite accessible in, in the sense of anyone being able to start a Twitch channel and like everyone being able to start a live streaming part of their business, like for thinking from an artist perspective. But yeah, I, th- I think the part that is really concerning understandably from the artist's perspective is whether the rise of these income streams shifts value further and further away from the actual music itself. And there was actually an article that was just published on pitchfork last night about TikTok, which is not really a new company, but it's definitely increasing in value and its parent company, ByteDance is reportedly worth around three times as much as Spotify right now. And so it's a really big, mobile-centric tech company based out of China. And this is a problem that you see time and time again with these kinds of short-form video apps and that the artist involved or the artist whose music is being featured on those platforms, unless you're involved with one of the major labels that owns a distribution company that has a deal with TikTok, which is few and far between, you're not really getting revenue from the viral exposure that you're getting on these platforms. And this is a problem that people saw with Vine, with companies like DubSmash, with musically which is now under tiktok and kind of rebranded but yeah i think it's kind of an old problem that will definitely take on new forms this year in terms of one artists feel an increasing amount of pressure to direct their attention away from their music and more towards branding and marketing and not really monetizing the record in and of itself and then even as they do that the way that these companies are structured they're not really delivering that value back to those artists anyway So yeah, there definitely is a conflict
0: there. Right. I mean, I think TikTok's a great example because, you know, I'm not involved in a license. And yet when I search for my artists on TikTok, there's just tons of stuff that's been posted and tons of the music is being used. So obviously we're not getting paid for any of those usages. I feel like this is the heart of the argument between tech and the music industry. I mean, it's the YouTube argument all over again. People are being infinitely creative with their user-generated content that they make, but in the course of it, they use other people's copyrighted material without permission. And so I feel like there's this constant push and pull between, you know, what are we going to do? Because the people who argue, who, I mean, obviously are funded by Google largely a lot of the time, and some people are, you know, genuinely, theoretically believe this you know, that we don't want to diminish other people's creative abilities. But it's like, you have to, to some extent, pay for the content of the first person's artistic. You know what I mean? It's like, no one's going to make music if they can't make money from making music. And if you make music, and then it just gets used by other people to create content that you can't profit from, that's a real problem.
1: Yeah, there is definitely a legal issue. So it's, it's technological, it's legal, it definitely is political and social just in terms of The incentives that these various companies that have so much power in the music industry have or don't have to bring these changes forward. But just thinking about how the Music Modernization Act, which is one of the biggest milestones for the industry of the last year, it took so long for that to be passed, even though streaming services had already been around and had already really transformed the industry for over a decade up until that point. And yeah, I think a lot of these can be boiled down to legal challenges, like what counts as fair use. There are some concrete parameters around that, but it's still a very open debate. Like, you know, like is a 15 second snippet on TikTok, fair use. Some people would argue that it's not and would demand their money. And also thinking about one of the biggest trends that wasn't really a trend last year was blockchain which has been around in the music industry for, in terms of people trying to build companies around it for, for several years now, that that's where a lot of people see something like blockchain coming in and really providing value in being able to recognize content and then transact on these much smaller snippets of content at much larger scale and in a much more transparent manner. And I think that's why, even though there haven't really been any concrete implementations of that technology, that's why that Technology is also still
0: appealing. I don't want to go down the blockchain rabbit hole because it's, it's a big one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But my understanding of how blockchain works is that actually, I, I've always been real skeptical about blockchain for the simple reason that, you know, I run a record label and part of my job is to send emails to people who've been on the label and, you know, are currently on the label. That's easy. People who have, you know, were on the label 27 years ago well, that starts to get harder because people do things like forget to update their email address with you or forget to update their mailing address. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, blockchain, it's like data is only as good as the people who are supposed to be updating it. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, that's great. If everyone really is on top of updating their their information, then yeah, that's a system that could work. But I've seen firsthand how hard it is. I mean, I forget to do it myself, you know, mm-hmm. move and and forget to tell somebody and then, you know, find out. Six months later, someone's like, my God, I've been trying to get a hold of you all this time. So, you know, it's just, I feel like it's funny that it's such a big technology-focused thing when, in fact, it really relies more almost than anything else on human input. And I feel like the the potential for human error is so great (laughs) that it's funny to
1: me. Exactly. I have trouble
0: imagining it really working that well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you're definitely not alone in that at all. And (laughs) it's quite... It's amusing to me that I'm hearing the phrase more and more blockchain inspired rather than just being a blockchain company. Right. I think that yeah, the first time that I talked to STEM, the distribution company, they were using the term blockchain inspired. And I've also talked to a couple other startups who wanted to do something around blockchain, but then... Quickly pivoted away from that, but we're really inspired by. I, th- I think people are inspired by the conversations that have come about as a result of this. Like, like people in trying to imagine what a blockchain music company would be like, speaking now more openly about these problems. Yeah. Whereas I feel like previously it wasn't the case, right? And then, yeah, I think I think a really smart and healthy response to this is saying, yeah, blockchain is not a solution for all of the industry's problems, but there- and there are other ways that we can solve issues that we've been having for a really long time in ways that don't cost as much or don't require as much development. Yeah. So let's touch
0: briefly on one of the big stories from last year that seems to me to also be like a, a theme throughout the music business right now, which is the hiring by Spotify of Don Ostroff from Condé Nast. Mm. To me, that sent a real signal to the industry. You know, Spotify, which calls itself very publicly a music company, hiring someone not from the music center to run the company. You talk a whole bunch about sort of the intersection of media and music these days. So do you want to just touch on that a little?
1: Definitely. Yeah. And thinking about recent news, I think we see one of the biggest examples of why it's no longer a music company in the fact that it just acquired one of the world's biggest or most valuable podcast production companies, Gimlet Media, and right. one of the biggest podcast distribution and hosting companies, Anchor. And now that's all housed under the same company of Spotify, which talking with labels and with artists about how they understand the platform and how they're navigating it. They definitely still think of Spotify as a music company or they're thinking about playlist placement and they're thinking about Discover Weekly, whereas now that there's so much more content now on Spotify that it's just does not touch that world at all. And, and I think this will be a challenge that will be amazing if they want to pull it off of how do you integrate the podcasting and audio world with the music world, like from, from a discovery perspective, I think that's that really hasn't been solved yet in terms of how people discover and recommend podcasts effectively. I know Spotify and Pandora are, are both working on that. But then also like what happens when both podcasts, and songs and tracks from artists what happens when both of those appear in the same playlist and their algorithms recommended? recommended? i think that that completely changes the way that artists and labels need to think about their strategy on platforms like spotify and i think the the fact that spotify is expanding beyond just music but, so there are definitely financial incentives for spotify's part just because they have not really made a profit with with the exception of this most recent quarter q4 2018 they never really made a profit off of just music alone. And so there definitely is an incentive to diversify, especially now that they're a public company. But then from the artist and label side, I think it is also a healthy conversation and healthy realization that maybe it's not the best idea to put all our eggs into Spotify's basket, which I feel like a lot of independent artists are pressured to do, just given the sheer scale of Spotify and the fact that there is a pretty like, you know, well laid out regimented system for like you have to get this many streams to appear on on these kinds of playlists and all that, but yeah. So I think that'll be one of the most interesting threads to follow in 2019. I think is seeing to what extent Spotify can pivot out of a really solid and robust brand up to this point as a music company because it's tried to do that with video content over the last couple of years and has kind of failed with that basically all of its original video series have been shut down so whether it can do that and then two what it means for artists and labels who traditionally saw spotify and saw paid streaming at large as their saving grace a lot of people over the last year or two, I've heard express the fear that labels were going to treat like companies like Spotify as the new CD, and and what they're meaning by that is saying that they're going to put all their eggs into yeah like the paid streaming subscription basket. Say, oh, there probably isn't going to be anything coming after this innovation. But that's basically how they treated CDs. It brought them to a quote unquote golden age, which then did not prepare them for Napster for streaming P two P file sharing everything in the early twenty first century. And so I think there there's going to be a significant mindset shift in that sense as well of labels being like, oh, maybe Spotify isn't going to be our closest ally and we should look elsewhere for what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's
0: always good sense. I think it's always hard in a marketplace for people to make a shift quickly. I think independent labels as a a rule have had a little bit more success with that just because we tend to be smaller Mm -hmm. so we can pivot a little bit more quickly. But yeah, it is hard, especially when as you say, as you said earlier in this interview, artists are being sort of forced by the marketplace to look at themselves more as a brand and a media experience rather than just people who make music and then put that music out in a specific way. I think we are making that shift. And I think once, you know, artists and labels have made that shift, it's hard to sh- for them to shift again. So it, it's it's a difficult situation. But that's I think that's the way it's always been with tech. I mean, apparently, you know people thought there would never be anything but radio, Mm -hmm. you know, and so when television came online, they were like, no one's going to adopt this stupid format. Ha ha ha. (laughs) I mean, that's the story. So do you have anything that you would like to just sort of wrap up? Like what's the most interesting trend you think for the music business moving forward into 2019?
1: Yeah. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about generally is the role of artificial intelligence in the creative process. So at this Point. I think in music it is much more of an interesting philosophical problem than like an actual concrete problem that is threatening to an artist or a label but if you look beyond music I'm personally a little bit terrified just by the rise of beat fakes and, and by the ability of of a third party to create a really convincing avatar from scratch of like a real public figure and to convince people that that is really, you know, that, that is really Barack Obama speaking or that is really Donald Trump speaking, the, the fact that this technology is already out there, I think can have significant ramifications for the music industry as well, just with regards to rights. So, okay, one one example, this might be bouncing around a little bit, but in the world of smart speakers, which will continue to grow this year, I think there's there's a lot of conversation about how to create music listening experiences that are tailored to smart speakers. And, and part of the hypothesis around that is just to give an example like Ariana Grande. Say you want to listen to her album that just came out and you want to find out more information about it. You can have Ariana Grande herself recording specific podcast episodes, audio recordings, etc. That can be played on demand from you know an Amazon Echo speaker, given the right command. But there also is technology out there that technically can allow anyone to upload a recording of Ariana Grande speaking, and then type whatever they want into like a, a text box, and then have Ariana Grande's voice say any of those words. Mm. And the, the, the technology is still in its early stages. It's definitely not perfect, but it's it's closer than I think a lot of people realize. So, speaking of the law not being prepared to deal with technological advancements, I feel like as of yet there, there really is nothing that equips us with tools to deal with this kind of infringement on, on people's public image or just like copying yeah the like copying people's image and people's voices outright so yeah that, that's something that, that i've been following which requires definitely looking outside of the music industry and looking at what's happening
0: in a political world on a global level but yeah wow well that's a really scary note to end on but <laughs> we're out of time <laughs> so
1: Sherry, <laughs> who <Jay-hoo. laughs>
0: Thank you so much for being with us again on The Future of What.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: of Hammers by Tao with the Get Down Stay Down. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Charles Caldas from our episode Merlin Works Magic for Indies. Charles, welcome to The Future of What.
2: Thank you, Portia. Fantastic to be here.
0: So we are talking about. Merlin today and the results of the 2019 report, which was extremely exciting. You guys paid out your first billion dollars to independent labels in the first nine years of your existence, and then the second billion in just the last 18 months, which is quite an accomplishment. We're we're very excited about that. But let's get started by just doing a brief overview of what function Merlin performs for the industry and for the independents.
2: Yeah, of course. And I laugh, not because I think $2 billion is funny. It's just so far (laughs) beyond what we ever imagined. Hearing it out loud still sounds very strange. Absolutely. Merlin was created by the global independent sector to really help them navigate what was, you know, 12 years ago, a very uncertain landscape in terms of the evolution of digital music. You know, 12 years ago, we were just seeing the emergence of YouTube and the very first streaming models independent labels around the world were feeling that the digital marketplace being global as it was, was particularly challenging for them because, you know, historically independents have been regional. You know, independent labels tend to be based around a scene in a particular city or in a country at the most. And dealing from that local position with a global marketplace, I think for a lot of independents felt like a very difficult and Challenging path, and also one that risked having the music that they produced being valued lower than what the music from the major labels, who are inherently global organizations, were attracting in the marketplace. So, really, over the last 12 years, we've helped independents from an increasing number of markets around the world navigate this world of change in a number of ways. In, in the early days, by Protecting their rights in copyright infringement cases. You know, we successfully took uh, copyright infringement actions against companies like Lastfm, LimeWire, Groove Shark, and you know, returned significant amounts of money back to our members by you know pursuing those infringement action. But also, you know, really licensed what at that point were you know very uncertain models. Our very first deal was with a little Swedish startup called Spotify that 12 years ago no one had heard of and and is obviously dominating the debate today. But, you know, since then it's been not only, you know, business models like the streaming model and the subscription model, but it's about, you know, where video sits in the business. It's about how you open new markets in Latin America and China and Japan. So, you know, the, the quickest way to say it is that Merlin's really there to ensure that the companies we represent are doing the best possible digital business for the maximum possible return. Right.
0: And the the great part about Merlin is that so much in our industry changes all the time anyway. But really, prior to the digital age, we didn't have this type of opportunity in the independent sector to be represented as a collective. And it's made, I think, the independent sector a true player, in the music industry, which is really powerful and important.
2: Certainly looking back, that's one of the most satisfying things. I think we can say we've achieved, you know, independents are by nature independent and they like doing their own thing and forging their own path. But I think in this instance, creating something not only that, you know, essentially operates in a not-for-profit manner where all of the money that we make beyond what it costs to run Merlin annually goes back to the members. So it's an incredibly low-cost solution, but bringing all of those independents together into one basket of rights where we can represent now a set of labels that's equivalent, you know, just about to the smallest of the major labels in these negotiations means that not only do, do we have a real voice in these negotiations, but we also have an increasing amount of evidence and data that shows that the independence is thriving in the streaming and the digital space. And, you know, it has, I think, changed the game in terms of the perception of where independent music sits in the marketplace. You know, 12 years ago, talking to these big companies, I think the assumption was that, you know, independents were, you know, either bedroom musicians or general weirdos who were producing music that wasn't of interest to very many people at all. Right, right. But what this globalisation of the streaming marketplace has shown is no matter whether your label is based in Portland or Chicago or Melbourne, Australia or Tokyo or Jakarta, Indonesia, there's an increasing number of available fans of your music out there that you're getting to much more directly. And the way that we're performing in this digital market, which I think the survey you referred to, shows means that consumers with more access to this music are you know actually enjoying it more playing it more making it part of their collections and you know I think Merlin has played a you know significant role in helping the companies we represent navigate that
0: absolutely and especially being able to be at the same table as the three majors and make deals that you know we assume are similar or at least have similar features you know, have led to things like when Merlin negotiated the Spotify deal for their independent membership, there was an equity portion because when Spotify went public, there was an equity payout, which the member labels benefited from just like the major labels did. So that was a huge difference between now and 12 years ago.
2: Yeah, I think equity and those kind of benefits are a very handy insight into the way the market was evolving 12 years ago. You know, individually, a lot of independents knew, and it was public in some cases, that the major labels were getting equity in these new streaming services as part of the deals that they were doing. But even the biggest independent individually dealing with a global marketplace was never going to get itself into that position. Absolutely, And the fact that we were able to bring all of these you know rights together and be able to have those conversations, as you say, at the same table as the majors got us into that position with Spotify, which ended up... Again, 12 years on being worth far more than we ever expected, but very importantly meant that the companies represented under the Merlin deal who benefited when we sold that equity weren't at a disadvantage to the majors. Absolutely. You know, I think the real concern, again, going back to the beginning of Merlin was not only that, that deals were inferior, the deals being offered to the independents were inferior. So if you were trying to sign a band as an independent label and were getting less money out of these digital platforms than the major labels, you were starting at a disadvantage. And secondly, if the majors had these additional benefits that were being given to them, whether equity or revenue guarantees or you know, whatever other mechanisms underpin that deal, if you weren't part of that, Again, you weren't able to offer that as an independent tier label. So that rebalancing of the marketplace and that opening of those opportunities to all artists, regardless of whether they signed to a major or an independent, I think was very much at the, at the heart of Merlin and, and remains at the heart of Merlin. And, you know, I don't think it's any accident that as the streaming world has evolved, we're seeing an increasing number of very significant commercial successes come from independent labels over the, the last 12 years that Merlin's been around.
0: Well, absolutely, because it's changed the economic possibilities for independence in a very significant way. You know, it used to be that only majors could afford to do certain things, and I feel like that value proposition has completely changed now.
2: Yes, I think the path to market, even though it's quite a, become quite a noisy path to market, crowded with lots of tracks and lots and lots of people uploading their own music, if you think back to the pre-digital world where you know, to to get into Tower Records as an independent label meant you either had to have a major label distributor or you had to have some serious traction around who you were through a, another powerful distributor of some sort. Mm-hmm. I meant that, you know, getting your music in front of consumers wasn't in any way as easy as it is nowadays. You know, I mean, I've worked in the independent distribution before I took this Merlin job. The, the catch cry was always... If only we could, you know, get this song on the radio or get someone to review it or get the record stores to stock it and play it in store, people would love this. Right. But when you had record stores with limited amounts of shelf space where you had radio stations with limited playlists and limited press outlets, actually even cracking through that barrier to get to the consumer was such a, a heavy lift, whereas nowadays, you know, really, you can, you can record something today, have it online tomorrow and have a very, very instant kind of feedback in terms of what you're putting into the marketplace. Absolutely. And that, that democratization, I think, has been great for independents.
0: Yes. And also, the statistics that I've seen over and over show that independent music sort of over-indexes in the streaming space. Is that also true from what you've seen?
2: Yeah, we definitely say it. And, and actually, we used to say it over-indexed. Now we're saying it actually indexing to its true, <laughs> to its true value because... I think the assumption, saying that something over-indexes assumes that, you know, it was performing badly and now it's performing well. Right. But, you know, realistically, I think what it shows is that the music that's put out by independent labels, you know, if it's going to connect with a consumer, it's going to connect with a consumer. That person doesn't care which label it's signed to or whether it's a major and an in independent. Right. You know, this is still a business about emotional connections and the fact that you can have this music in front of people and have people connect with it means that I think we're finally seeing independent music perform the way it should in the marketplace, which is, you know, front and center rather than, you know, sort of at the back and off to the side somewhere. Absolutely.
0: So this is a question I actually don't know the answer to off the top of my head. I know that Merlin members are labels and they are distributors, but can artists also be Merlin
2: members? The only limit to being a Merlin member and being able to participate in the deals is you have to control your own copyrights, but you also have to be able to deliver those copyrights into the marketplace, which is why we predominantly represent labels and distributors because they've either built or they've bought that infrastructure that, you know, digitizes your music, delivers it onto the platforms, tracks the reporting back. You know, it's not quite as easy as just giving us the music in the way that you would to a distributor. You know, Merlin is not a distributor. We don't touch people's content. We're not adding another layer to it. Having said that, we've got an increasing number of members of Merlin which are artist-run labels. Mm, Yes. And, you know, and some of those have been around for a while, like Killian Welch's Academy Label. And there's newer ones like Dim Mac, which is the label of Steve Aoki, the DJ who's built an increasingly exciting label off the back of his own music. So I think what I'd say to that is the nature of what we would consider historically an independent is changing. And you know the way the markets evolved has opened the door for a lot more different kinds of companies to participate in the market. And I think that's equally exciting just in terms of the evolution of of, of how music's created and distributed.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I say that all the time on this show, that it's not that artists need a label, but they need people in their lives. They need a team that does the same function as a label because a label is actually more important than ever nowadays because of the difficulty in the marketplace of, you know, bringing your music to market. It's not like it used to be. You don't just press a couple CDs and run out
2: with your trunk of your car open and sell them to people. Yeah. I think a lot of independent labels started that way, you know, selling at shows, selling in their local stores. The market, it is much more technically complicated than that now. But I think, you know, th- there's so many services available to artists now. You know, I think from where I sit and looking at the Merlin membership and how it's evolved, you know, I definitely think the role that. Labels or you know people who help you perform those label-type functions are incredibly important to the development of an artist. You know you need that guidance, that curation, that sort of second opinion, that that strategy, that that those people are great at delivering. And you know we can see at the top end of the market. You know I think as a music fan, if something comes out on Ninja Tune or Warp or Rockstars for that matter. You know, you've got some idea of what kind of music you're going to get once you sort of start following what that label does. And that that cultural function that these labels play in terms of bringing, you know, whether it's musical genres or like minded people or music that appeals to a particular musical taste or mindset is, as you say, in in this crowded marketplace where so much music comes out every day, is increasingly important, I think, to help artists cut through and really find their fans. Absolutely.
0: Well, Charles, you have done so much for the independent sector over the last <laughs> 11, 12 years as, you know, head of Merlin, but you are stepping down at the end of this year. So what's next for you?
2: The first thing that's next for me is a bit of time on a beach, <laughs> <laughs> like back in, back in Australia, reconnecting with friends and family. But No, look, I think for me, and as I think I've said to a lot of people, moving on from Berlin for me has nothing to do with losing belief in the organization or not being excited about what it does. I just feel that in the role like mine, 12 years with all of the global travel and the constant change means that, you know, occasionally you need some fresh blood and you need a fresh perspective. You know I feel good that the company' is in great shape. We have an incredible team of executives. We have a, a growing membership, the organization's financially healthy, so i'm I'm feeling very bright about Merlin's that future. That's awesome. For me, I think I've worked in this independent sector my whole life. I can't imagine that's going to that's going to change drastically. And you know, I think probably, my instinct is that I'll end up doing something slightly smaller than Merlin, which is, <laughs> uh, given the numbers you were quoting at the beginning, probably not going to be awfully hard. Right. Yeah. But I just, you know, I'm very, I'm still very excited about the evolution of the market and where it goes. And it feels like, you know, I'd like to work with, you know, maybe closer to the ground, helping some people succeed either within their own business or across a series of businesses. But, you know, really for now, I'm focused on getting Merlin through to the end of the year, having my break, and and I'll, I'll make those difficult decisions next year, I think. Sounds great.
0: Well, Charles called us. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Future of What?
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great to talk. Thank you. <clears throat>
3: A girl who's still around The morning after We broke up a month ago And I grew up I didn't know Wait and see A happy day And then you pay And feel like shit The morning after But now I feel Changed around And instead of falling down I'm standing up The morning after Situations get fucked up Turned around sooner or later I could be another fool Or an exception to the rule You tell me the morning after Cricket spin can't come to rest I'm damaged bad at best She'll decide what she wants I'll probably be the last to know No one says until it shows See how it is
0: That was Say Yes by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Katie Garcia from our episode, Demystifying a and Katie, welcome to The Future of What.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yay. Okay. So, you do A&R for your own record label which is called Bayonet Records and you also do anr for Secretly. Now, Secretly Group has four labels. So, do you do anr for all four of those labels, rather five if you include your own, or do you just do them for which which labels do you do anr for? <laughs>
4: I do A&R for three of the labels. So for Dead Oceans, Jag Jaguar, and Secretly Canadian. Awesome. Yeah. Numero Group, they do their own thing. And then obviously Bayonet is distributed by Secretly,
0: but that's still my baby. So I want to talk to you about A&R because I think a lot of people don't understand what it is or how it works. And you're particularly interesting because you are doing it for four different labels, which means you have to hear a band and not only say, oh, I like this band, I think this band is good, but I think it would be better on this label versus these other ones. Is that right? <laughs> yes.
4: <Yeah, so laughs> it's an
0: extra layer.
4: It is. And honestly, when I was like first approached about doing a and R at Secretly group, it was a concern of mine because I was like, how am I gonna do this? I have a label of my own. But actually as time went on, it was so easy. You just kind of have a sense of what works for which label. I think with Bayonet too, like we tend to work with like newer, more developing artists and with secretly, they tend to gravitate towards artists that maybe have a little bit more of like a fan base already. And then as far as like determining which you know artist goes on which, label within the label group. It's really just a combination of things. It's, you know, which of the partners has the most passion for the project. Some, you know, sometimes it comes down to that. Sometimes it comes down to like really mundane stuff like scheduling. Right, right. We have November free. Okay, we'll do it. Right. (laughs) It's like cool. Like, you know, because essentially it's all the same team. All the project managers, the marketing team, our digital marketing team, like everybody works across all three of the labels that release new music so yeah and then you know and then part of it is there is definitely an identity to each label and it's almost hard to put into words like it's it's almost like a feeling where we just know we're like this fits you know
0: sure and I think also it might even be easier to say you know when it doesn't fit yes totally Exactly. Yeah, because that's what we have. I mean, Kill Rockstars, we had two labels. We had sort of a more experimental punk noise label called 5RC that closed when my husband left the company because that was really his thing. But, you know, I get demos every day. I'm sure you do too. And, you know, you listen to something and your first thought is usually, this doesn't fit. <laughs> you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. So let's talk about doing A&R. Because I think it's really, you know, I think this is something bands are always fascinated by. They just want to know, like, you know, how do I get signed? And, you know, what are people listening for? So you tell me, like, when you listen to a band, like, what is it that you hear?
4: Or what is it that I'm, like, searching for when I'm like, that's a winner?
0: Well, I, yeah, I said, like, what is it that you hear, like, when you're like, oh, like, mm-hmm. I want to listen to that again?
4: Ooh, let's see. Really strong songwriting, something that's interesting and unique. You know, I feel like even if an artist is mining an older genre for inspiration, like, that's fine. As long as they make it their own and as long as they're, you know, really strong songwriting in there, then I think that's, you know, kind of what makes it special and makes it stand out to me. Obviously It's always a plus when the person has like an incredible voice and they're super skilled musicians and, you know, like seem really on top of it and answer emails. But I kind of feel like all of, you know, I I think the first thing, first and foremost, is like really strong songwriting. And yeah, I feel like that's kind of what I look for. Yeah. A really strong unique voice
0: right yeah i know these are hard questions because this is like it's hard to answer these questions in a way that doesn't sound like so trite like everybody says the (laughs) exact same thing (laughs) exactly i totally i totally get that because i have to say the same thing when people ask me that question like what are you looking for when you hear a band but i'm trying to find a way to articulate it that other people can understand because there is a big difference i mean this is a multi-layered thing it's like you can hear a song that you think is terrific But that's one song. Like, what I tend to do is, like, if I hear a song and I really like the song, I go listen to another song by the same band. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I want to know, like, because everybody can probably write one really good song. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) But I want to know if they can write more than one good song. Totally. No,
4: and that's real, too. Like, there definitely have been projects where I've gotten you know, a demo, and I'm just like, oh, but this one song is so good. but then the rest are just total garbage. And it's a, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. I'm like, I want to root for you so bad, but I, you know, you just
0: can't. So, okay. So let's say you hear a band and, you know, I don't want people to be confused. Most of the bands that I find, I don't find from demos. I listen to a lot of demos, but I don't usually find them from demos. It tends to be other people telling me about it, especially bands on the label. That's like a very positive way, you know, when someone comes to you, they're already on the label and they're like, oh my God, I just played in Detroit with this band. You totally have to hear them or whatever. Totally. So let's say you hear a band, whatever. You hear them and you're like, hey, I like this. This sounds really good. I'm intrigued. What is your next step? What do you do next with that?
4: Ooh. Well, am I already in touch with this person?
0: No, let's say you just heard the music. You haven't seen them live or anything. Like, do you try to see them next or what do you what do you do next?
4: Yeah. So, I think usually, I mean, depending on where they live, I'll try to see them next. If they don't live in the same city, the first thing I'll do is probably just reach out to them via email and see what their upcoming shows are like, if they're playing in New York, which is where I live. Or let's say they're playing at South by Southwest, like I'm going to South by in March, you know, and so that's like a good place to see a lot of artists that don't necessarily live in New York. And yeah, and, and ask them to hear, you know, more new demos. Yeah, I think that's usually the next step. And let's say like, I'm not able to see them play for a really long time. I'll uh, try to hop on a call with the artist and or, you know, with their manager, if they have a manager, and just get a sense of what the story is behind the artist and behind the music. I think that's actually a, another really important part as far as, you know, working with an artist. I think as labels, like we, we really want to tell those stories, you know, on behalf of our artists and present them in a way that connects with a lot of people. And so that's really important to us. So I, I try to kind of find the story with the
0: artist early on. Right. So can you give us an example? Like over the last four years, has there been an artist that really stands out to you in terms of like great music and then also a great story?
4: Yeah. As far as artists that I personally work with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all all of them. (laughs) No, no. But yeah, I want to say the second artist I signed to secretly or to Dead Ocean specifically was Japanese Breakfast. And I think, you know, aside from being like such a strong songwriter, you know the story behind her first record i thought was so compelling and moving and beautiful it's you know a lot of it was like her grieving the loss of her mom and coping with that and you know her romantic relationship at that time and you know the fact that she was able to be so open and vulnerable about that i thought was really amazing yeah and and she just does such a great job of letting people like into her world i feel like she really gives a lot of herself to her fans and there's are so many different facets to her personality, you know, from her interest in video games, you know, sprung this idea on our end to make a video game for her, which we did. And then now she's, like, composing the score to this awesome, like, professional video game. So, yeah, I think artists like that you know, are, are really incredible to work with. I, I definitely feel really lucky to work with her.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's always really exciting. And I love your little plug for cool merch that you can also make because I feel like that is so much like the funnest part of my job by far is when, so fun. <laughs> when a band has like a particular funny interest or something and then we can make some cool merch to go with it. I love that. That's like, I don't know why I like that so much. <laughs> Same, I love it. It's silly, but it's like, it's awesome. Okay, so... I have asked this question of one other person who does a in a completely different genre than what you and I do. And it was a really surprising answer. So I'm going to ask you the same question and see what you say. Do you feel like talent is like the least of your problems when finding artists? Or do you feel like that's not the case?
4: Ooh, interesting. Interesting. That's a hard question to answer. I think there is a lot of talent. I think the challenge right now is sifting through everything. I just feel like there's so much out there. Just sifting through the people who genuinely have talent and, you know, others that don't or others that are still working on their craft. Like, I I think that's a really huge challenge is just like you are just inundated with, you know, submissions and, you know, your friends telling you, like, this band's great. And, you know, like, oh, you should check out this band or this artist or this singer. It's like you have so much thrown at you. I think the challenge is just sifting through it and, and
0: finding the gems, you know, out in the vast ocean of music. Right, which is a hard thing to ask people to do. And that's, you know, why the job that you and I both have is a really hard job because... You're somehow supposed to figure out, like, not only is this person a true talent, but they also have the work ethic that's going to make this work for them, this job that they say they want to do. Totally. And I feel like that is a really difficult aspect of this because I don't really know, you know, it's like every person I've ever talked to before they're signed to my label, they're always like, I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to tour 100 million days a year and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and, like, I'm really, really into it. And then... They either may or may not do that once they're actually signed to the label. And so it's like, it's just really hard to know what people are going to be like beforehand. And I think that's been a challenge in very recent years. It's interesting that you've been doing A&R for four years, because I would say the last four years for me have been some of the hardest for me in terms of figuring out, of like making that decision. It's like, when is this band ready to be on a label and when does this band really just need to time to cook a little more? Like, let them put out their own record totally. and let them tour a bunch and, like, sort of get a sense of this job.
4: Yeah, it's so hard to know that, too. And, like, we struggle with that a lot, too. And, I mean, even with Bayonet, which, like I said, like, tends to sign, you know, younger in terms of, like, not age, but in terms of, like, the inception of the band, you know, like, new bands like even with that it's hard to decide like okay are they ready to be on a label or or should they keep doing their own thing for a little while and like be a band for a bit on their own
0: exactly yeah that's really it's really tough to decide that yeah have you ever signed a band that hasn't toured before yeah
4: kind of (laughs) So before doing this, I was the label manager at Captured Tracks for four years. And when I was over there, we signed this artist Catwalk. Now he goes by his name, but he just had like a string of unfortunate things that happened to him. Like we were like about to put out his record, his record was like almost done. And then his computer crashed and he lost literally all of the files to his album. Oh no. And you know, essentially, it was like years before we ended up putting out the record. I think it was around the time that I left is when they eventually put it out. At the time, we had put out just like a seven-inch of his, uh-huh. and it had done pretty well. Anyway, he—it was just like these series of like, just really bad luck. So he didn't really tour, but I feel like a lot of it was just like purely circumstantial. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, aside from that, I can't really think of any, to be honest, unless it was like a reissue of like an older band, obviously that doesn't tour anymore. But other than that, I would be really hard for me to work with a band that doesn't tour. Yeah. Yet, to be honest, you know, like I, that's definitely another thing that I look for. Again, it's, you know, not the first thing, but I would definitely say it's like the second or third thing that I think of when potentially working with an artist is what is their willingness to tour like, like, are they going
0: to want to be on the road? Are they going to want to be, you know, doing radio sessions on the road and all that stuff? Yeah. No, that's actually on my website. I say, if you're not touring, don't send me a demo. (laughs) I'm just really hardcore about it. Fair enough. At least you're upfront about it. It doesn't work. People still send their demos regardless. But you know, I just feel like it's such an important part. I agree. Because I keep, you know, I keep coming back to like, you know, you know this, I know this. It's like we get up in the morning, we go to these offices and we do this job. Like this is our job. Like this is how we eat. Yep. And I feel like bands don't always understand that this is a job because for them, they're probably doing something else because they're younger and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get it going, get it, get it off the ground. So they don't actually do this full time yet. And everyone of course is like, I want to be a rock star, like for sure. So like everybody thinks they want this job, but I'm always like, but you need to find out what this job really is. Because if it turns out that you hate touring or you can't stand being away from your like significant other or whatever, like, you know, you're not going to last. This is not a job for you.
4: 100% so true. Yeah, and I really like your perspective of, like, thinking about it as a job. Like, artists don't think about it as a job all the time, but it is. And it's just, like, a really fun job, you know? Right. But Well, it can be. You know, it can be a really fun be. job. It can <laughs> be. It can also be really grueling. You know, obviously, touring is hard. I understand why, you know, artists can be like, oh, like, I don't want to go out for that long or whatever. But there's always ways to make it work, you know, with touring. Um Like, even now, my husband, who plays in that band Beach Fossils, like, he will go out, you know, for maybe three weeks at a time. And he'll, like, go out and, like, do, like, a three-week East Coast tour and then, like, come back home and then fly out and do, like, a three-week, like, West Coast Midwest tour. And you can kind of break it up like that. But I know that, obviously, not everybody has the luxury of doing that, too. Like, sometimes just for pure, like, cost-effective reasons when you're, you know, early on in your career as a band, it's easier to just like, you know, get in the van and just go.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. But I also, you know, it's like, I want people to understand that this is a job that if you decide that you like this job, it just gets harder. Like there's just more work. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't a point at which you're just like, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this a million times. Like people are like, oh, I'm signed. Now I can like relax. (laughs) It's like, no, no, (laughs) it is the opposite of that. Right now you, now the work starts. Like this was, this was point, you know, this was point zero. Like we're moving up <laughs> from here, people. Exactly. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Okay. So here you are doing a A&R. Is there a team that works with you that also does a r there? Or are you kind of like the person who's bringing the bands in and then you discuss it as a team?
4: Yeah. So we actually, we have a whole team of people doing a I'm one of the, Oh, gosh, I don't I don't even know how many people off the top of my head. But there are the partners of the company, do A&R. And then we also have Ophir, who's on the West Coast in LA. John Coombs, who's here with me in the New York office. And then additionally, we have Adam Nealon, who's in London, along with Hannah Overton. And then we have Eric Dynas, who's in Bloomington. So we're kind of all over the place. And then Darius, Chris, Ben... And Phil also. Right. So.
0: Cool. Yeah. So that's our A&R squad. I love it. Well, that's, I mean, in a way that's kind of amazing. I We have like eight people at Kill Rock Stars, and I do A&R, but I'm always happy to hear suggestions, you know? Totally. I like that because it would be too much if it was just all me. Like that's hard. It's hard to be yeah, on top of everything.
4: And it's good to just like get feedback from other people whose tastes that you trust, you know, like... Just like, what do you think about this? Do you think, you know, and then you can kind of like internally field a lot of those questions or doubts that you might have like is it too early you know like should we just be fans right now which is again it's like also always a gamble because the thing is you're like oh is it too early but then if you don't sign it and like somebody else does then like there you go it's gone forever or at least for the next you know three albums or you know so you always uh, that's also something to consider
0: well you just have to you just have to know the state of the industry so basically if it's a female singer songwriter you got to sign up before domino End of story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Just grab yeah. it before Chris Gillespie gets a hold of it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Katie Garcia, what a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with me. I'm such a huge fan of what you do. So, it, yeah, it's, it's really an honor to speak with you. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Tao with the Get Down. Stay Down. Elliot Smith, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at thefutureofwhatshow.com and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Clark Buckner at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Saban, president of the Music Business Association. See you next week.